Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 11. So if you brought a Bible, you can follow along there. You can use the Pew Bible uh, that's in front of you if you'd like to do that. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. So we'd love for you to follow along if you would like to do that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name's Sean Slate, and I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad to have you because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, uh, you could be at home recovering from your emergency gallbladder surgery, as my wife is doing right now. Or maybe uh, you could be uh, at home dreaming about those funnel cakes that we had last week and wondering if they're the cause for the gallbladder surgery. Or uh, maybe you could be at home uh, trying on some new joggers uh, so that you can work on your TikTok boy brand. which I've heard, somebody told me this week that TikTok boy was like a phrase, but maybe it isn't. Yeah, okay, anyway. Well, you're not doing any of those things. You're here with us. I do want to thank you for joining us. And uh, whether you're joining us here on this uh, little corner of 17th and Highland, or whether you're at home, or whether you're at an Airbnb in Costa Rica, we really are glad you're here. And the reality is that there's nothing better that you could do with your time than worship Jesus and to consider the beauty of his kingdom or to think about uh, his claims upon your life. And so I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God. And we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, uh, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. We love to sit around fire pits and wonder what kind of wood we're going to be burning or if the flame is going to be blue or yellow or white or I don't know, but we love to gather together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love, as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University in Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire world, right? That's who we are. A people who are trying to learn how to love God, we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that during this season of Lent, uh, we are going to uh, conclude our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to do so by focusing on that last week or that Passion Week of Jesus. And so this morning, uh, I want us to think about the value of the King, all right, the value of the King. So with that in mind, let's look together. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 
through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful uh, that you are uh, not silent, nor are you hidden, but you delight to reveal yourself. You've done that in your word and by your spirit and ultimately in the person and in the work of Jesus. And it is our prayer now that as we attend unto your word, we would see lovely things of your extravagant love for us. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's this common idea out there that everyone has a price, right? Everyone has a price. So growing up, you know, you would tell your friend, hey, look, if you eat this worm, I'll buy you a slush puppy. Or, you know, maybe your parents say, if, you know, if you just go to your room for like 10 minutes, I'll give you a piece of candy. Or when you're like interviewing for a job, a potential employer might say, how much would it cost for, uh, for you to join our team? Even Klondike has built their entire advertising uh, premise around this question. What would you do, right, for a Klondike bar? And behind all of these different ideas, uh, there is this question, right? What is it worth to you? Right, what is it worth to you? And as we look at our text this morning, that's the question that runs through the whole text. What is Jesus worth to you? Like, what is Jesus really worth to you? I want you to ask that question. I want you to ask yourself this question. What is Jesus worth to me? What is Jesus worth to me? Would you say that with me? What is Jesus worth to me? I want you to think about it. You want to take a moment? You want to write it down? You want to think about it? But think about it. What is Jesus worth to you? It's an important question. In our passage, everyone's asking the question. It begins in verse 1, the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Uh, The scribes and the chief priests uh, wanted nothing to do with Jesus. 
Jesus was nothing to them. In fact, they just really wanted Jesus gone. They wanted Jesus out of their lives. In fact, for the last three years, they've been looking for a way. They've been scheming for a way to get rid of him. If you've been with us for a while, you might remember all the way back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, and they are irate. And they gather together after the healing, and they search for a way to destroy him, the text says. You move forward to Mark chapter 11, and Jesus cleanses the temple, and they gather together, and they search for a way, it says, to destroy him. And it goes on to say, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. You move on from chapter 11 to chapter 12. In chapter 12, Jesus tells this parable about these uh, tenants who rise up and they kill the son of the master. The scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law, the chief priests, they then gather together and they're looking for a way to arrest him. And the text says because they were afraid, they'd lose their position with the people. And now here we are in chapter 14 and once again, the The religious elite are gathering together and they want to arrest him. They want to kill him. And for three years, this has been their scheme. How can we get rid of him? How can we get him out of our life? They want nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is nothing to them. And yet they're afraid of him. And they're afraid of Jesus because if Jesus were to keep doing what he's been doing, and if Jesus really is who he said he is, then this would mean that they would potentially lose power and they would lose significance. They are afraid that if Jesus really is who he said he is, then they would have to submit themselves to him. And then the people would start looking to him rather than to them. And so they were afraid. They are afraid that if Jesus is right, then maybe they're wrong. And they couldn't handle that. And so when Jesus comes into the world to, to, uh, to, to turn the world right side up, they can't handle it. They're undone by it, and they want to get rid of him. Jesus was nothing to them. And I wonder how different many of us are from them. I mean, is it not true that the last thing many of us want is to have our lives changed in any meaningful way? I mean, don't we want to just keep doing the things that we do? And it seems to me that uh, as a people, we want to be able to define our own truth. We want to create our own world. We want to live our own lives. We want to have the freedom to create ourselves and live in the world that we design. We want to, using the social media language, we want to create our own platform Uh, We want to maximize our own pleasure, and we want to make a name for ourselves in this world. And the last thing that many of us need or want is Jesus poking around in our lives and telling us what we ought to do or who we ought to be. And so life, for many of us, would just be a lot easier if Jesus would go away. And if we didn't have to think about him. Because if we don't have to think about Jesus, then we can spend our time and our money and our energy and our efforts and our thoughts all on ourselves, However we want. And then Jesus comes into the world and he begins to tell us that, that life really isn't about us. 
that it's not really about us, that it's about God. And he invites us to follow him, to follow him to his death and through his death. And as we die to ourselves, we begin to learn what it means to love God and to love our neighbor. And for many of us, that's just too much. And so we would rather kill him, we'd rather get rid of him, or at least have someone get rid of him and deal with him for us. It made me think of one of my favorite songs. It's from The Greatest Showman. Uh, It's famous by now, and you probably know it. I close my eyes and I can see. Uh, I close my eyes and I can see a world that's waiting up for me that I call my own. Through the dark, through the door, uh, through where no one's been before, but it feels like home. They can say, they can say, it all sounds crazy. They can say, they can say, I've lost my mind. I don't care, I don't care, so call me crazy. We can live in a world that we design, right? We can live in a world that we design. And I love this song. It's beautiful. It's filled with passion and filled with dreams, right? But I want you to think about the point that the song is inviting us to dream about. It's inviting us to consider a world that we can create in a world where we are in charge and where we are in control, a world that we can call our own. And yet here's the problem with that dream. We all live in the same world together. And we are social creatures who have to deal with one another. And if I were to create my own world and be in charge of it, Uh, I would leave many of you out. (laughs) And the reality is, if you were to create your own world, uh, you would leave, many of you would leave me out. But if Jesus is God, uh, we actually live in his world. A world that he has designed and a world where he teaches us and shows us how it is that we can flourish. We live in his world, and therefore we must give ourselves, our lives, and our dreams to him. Now here's the irony of this text. The irony begins in verse 1. It was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so that would be easy just to sort of pass over and go, okay, it's sort of situating it in history. It's the date we move on. It tells us the day that all this happened. Uh, And that's sort of true, but... The date is also filled with theological meaning. Because you have to remember that the Passover was that great celebration of God's liberating grace from Pharaoh's oppressive power. And what was Pharaoh doing back in the Exodus? Pharaoh was trying to create a world, his own world, a world where he was in charge, a world that he designed. And the way he designed the world was so that God's people would be his slaves, So that he could oppress God's people and make them slaves for his own power and for his own riches. And so this is important because as they're preparing to celebrate the Passover, what they're celebrating is the fact that this is God's world and it is not Pharaoh's. And the irony of all this is that as the chief priests and the scribes uh, come to power... And it's no longer Pharaoh who's in power, but the chief priests and the scribes are in power. They're wanting to create their own world that they design. A world where they're in power, where they're in charge. And when they're in charge, what happens? They become just like Pharaoh. They're plotting murder. 
and they're oppressing and enslaving God's people to lift themselves up for their own power and their own gain. And what I want you to see is that Jesus had become nothing to them. He was worth nothing to them. But what about you? Right? What is Jesus worth to you? Ask yourself that question. Like, what is Jesus really worth to me? What is Jesus worth to me? Would you say that with me? What is Jesus worth to me? I want to invite you to think about that. Now, what's interesting is that the chief priests and the scribes, uh, they were looking for someone to do their dirty work. <laughs> and sadly, uh, one of Jesus' best friends is willing to do it for them. You see that in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. As most of you know, uh, Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, he was not just a disciple, but he was actually one of the twelve. He was an apostle. And he watched Jesus do miracles, like amazing things. And he participated with Jesus in the feeding of thousands of people. He went with Jesus as he taught, and then Jesus sent him out, and Judas himself went out teaching about the kingdom. He ate with Jesus, he served with Jesus, but secretly Judas had, become, uh, had begun to hate Jesus. And what's so sad about this, you see it a little bit more explicitly in the parallel passage in Matthew 26. Uh, we're told that Judas went to the chief priest and asked. I often think of maybe they came to Judas. <laughs> hey, Judas, help us out. Judas went to them. And he asked, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Judas went to them and said, how much? I'll do it. Why would Judas do this? Well, I think that Judas was disappointed uh, with the life that Jesus had given him. I think that Judas was just sort of tired of it. He was tired of the waiting. He was tired of it not coming as quickly as he wanted. He was tired of not getting all the things that he desired. And initially, I would think that Judas was just like all the other apostles who followed after Jesus, thinking, Jesus is right. Jesus will lead us. Jesus is strong. Jesus will bring the kingdom. And if we're with him, we will become powerful. We will become respectable. We will become rich. We'll become successful. We'll be in charge. And then one night, they go to a dinner party. And while they're at the dinner party, this woman shows up and she pours out this expensive bottle of perfume, this ointment, all over Jesus. And Judas sees this, and he cannot handle it anymore. This is a joke. Like, he's done. And you see him getting angry in verse 4. Uh, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. In Mark, it's attributed to the disciples. In other parallel passages, it's actually attributed to Judas. 
in his comments, right? This could have been given to the poor. I mean, they sound pious and, and religious and, and socially thoughtful. And in many ways, this is what the world expects from us. It's what the world expects from the church, that, that we would give extravagantly to the poor, but not extravagantly to God. If you read the parallel passage, though, in John chapter 12, we learn the true reason for Judas's outrage. And Judas was outraged not because he cared about the poor, but John tells us that he was outraged because he was a thief. And Judas had charge of the money bag, and he used to help himself to what was put in it. Like Judas didn't care about the poor, he used the poor to save face. He used the poor to feel religious and right, and he was furious that what could have gone into the coffers that he could have helped himself to has now been poured out to Jesus. And I think in that moment, Judas just got sick of it. He got sick of all the teaching and all the talk. He got sick of all the promises and all the waiting. And He got sick of the poverty and not having a place to lay his head. He got sick of the weakness of the kingdom because he followed Jesus because what he wanted was the riches of the kingdom. He wanted the stuff of the kingdom, but he did not want the king of the kingdom. And so, when he heard these whispers that the scribes and the chief priests had put a bounty out on Jesus, he shows up and he says, how much? And they shake hands on 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver would have been about four months of wages. So it seems to me that Judas uh, gave up on Jesus because he was disappointed with the life that Jesus had given him. What about you? Uh, are you disappointed uh, with the life that Jesus has given to you? Uh, I've been around long enough to know many of you are. Many of us are disappointed with the life that we live, and we're disappointed with the life Jesus has given to us. They're, we're all filled with hurts. Uh, we're all filled with disappointments. Uh, we're all filled with regrets. And the question uh, for us is this. Is, imagine someone were to come to you this morning, and they were to say, look, I will give you everything that Jesus has never given you. If you'll just leave him. I'll give you your health. I'll give you money. I'll give you the job. I'll give you the platform. I'll give you the career. I'll give you those children. I'll give you that spouse. That Jesus has not given you. I'll give it to you. If you leave Jesus. And the question is, would you do it? Right, that's the question Judas poses to us. Would you sell out Jesus for some of the riches of this world? For some of our brothers and sisters around the world, this is a question, this is a temptation that they're faced with daily. I'll give you your freedom. I'll give you your comfort. I'll give you your job. I'll give you your life. If you would just sell out Jesus and sell out your friends, would you give up on Jesus? How much 
is Jesus worth to you? We must ask ourselves this question, right? How much is Jesus worth to me? How much is Jesus worth to me? You say that with me. How much is Jesus worth to me? But, but then there's this woman. Everyone in the passage has been plotting the death of Jesus. And there's this woman who isn't plotting his death, but she is helping him prepare for his death. Look again at verse 2. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Then verse 5, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. So what's happening here is this woman brings this expensive, extremely expensive bottle of perfume, which is in concentrate, uh, to Jesus. And this would have been, uh, I don't know, like an heirloom. It would have been this thing that had been passed down, like a savings account, a safety net. If, if Antiques Roadshow uh, would have showed up, this is what she would have brought, right? And then the show would have oohed and awed about it. And then it would have been the last thing they'd show before they go on to, I don't know, uh, all creatures great and small. Uh, you know, what DC, some sort of murder mystery in, in England. Uh, but anyway, uh, and so she brings this, uh, this ointment. And the text tells us that it's worth about 300 denarii. As most of you know, a denarii is a daily wage. And so if the proposed minimum wage uh, does rise to $15 an hour uh, for 10 hours a day, at 300 days, that would, have been, that would have meant that this bottle is worth about $45,000. A $45,000 bottle of perfume. And she takes it, she breaks it open, she pours it all over Jesus. And when Judas and some of the disciples see this, they think this is just a waste. They are appalled at what has just happened. And you see it in verse 5. They began to scold her. How dare you, they say to her. And Jesus is not so fast. I love what she has done. What she has done is beautiful. Jesus is receiving this extravagant expression of her love for him. And he delights in it. I want you to think about it this way. Uh, many of you in this room are wearing, right now, you're wearing uh, what we call an engagement ring. And traditionally, an engagement ring is something that someone saves up a month to three months of their salary to buy a ring for, right? Uh, average engagement ring in America is uh, $6,000. So I want you to think about this. Uh, remember when your husband or when your fiancé uh, got down on a knee and they held a ring out before you. How many of you scolded him? How many of you said, how dare you? Think of all the poor that could have been fed with this ring. Right? Uh, most of you received that ring with great joy. You took pictures of it and you Instagrammed it. Your helium hand went up and you just showed it off. And you, you weren't flipping anybody off, right? but you're just like, look at my ring. Uh, this is amazing. I can do this. Um, but anyway, and you're showing it off, right? You're showing your ring off, having parties, celebrating it. And the reason you do this is not because uh, there's anything practical about uh, engagement ring, they're incredibly impractical. I mean, they're big and clunky and they kind of rub a little 
blister on your inside of your finger. Uh, they're just an extravagant expression of someone's love for you. And that's what this perfume is. It is an extravagant expression of this woman's love for Jesus. And he loves it. Like he delights in it. And he says, what she has done is beautiful. And I think that this is a really strong challenge then to these disciples because the disciples are thinking good, practical, pragmatic things, good things like we could be feeding the poor. And feeding the poor, it's a good thing. It's a right thing. It's, in fact, it's a characteristic of God's kingdom. But the point that Jesus is making is that it is his death, not our charity, that ushers in the kingdom of God. It is his death, not our good works, that usher in the kingdom of God. Well-fed people are great. Well-fed people with no Jesus, there is no kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is in order for the kingdom to come, I must first die. So then how is it that this woman's gift then supports the kingdom? Well, notice verse 8. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. She's preparing his body through this act for his burial. Think about it this way. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, Drakkar Noir was the fragrance of choice uh, for young men. Uh, and it sort of would have been like Axe maybe a couple years ago. And when you would spritz yourself with that Drakkar, like you smelled for a month. You could not get it off of you. Uh, and so uh, imagine, remember the context of where we are, right? Here we are, we're two days before the death of Jesus. And according to the Gospel of John, the woman poured a pound not a spritz, but a pound of this ointment, of this nard. Uh, that's essentially like a Coke can of concentrated perfume is poured all over Jesus. It's worked into his hair, it's in his beard, it's on his clothes, it's on his feet. And what she's doing here is she's covering his body in the sweet fragrance of her love. You've got to remember that they were in a culture where they're not changing their clothes every day and they're not showering every day. And so two days later, his fragrance, her fragrance, would have still clung to his body as he died. I mean, think about what's going on. There, there Jesus is and he's hanging there on the cross and with every... Uh, breath that begins to lead towards his death and he's covered in blood he's covered in sweat but with each breath there's this aroma of the woman's love clinging to his body every breath right would then remind him of of this woman whom he loved much like a soldier who goes off to war and carries a necklace or a ring or a picture of the woman that he loves this fragrance uh, is clinging to him to remind him of those that he loves. And so the question for each of us is this, is, is what is Jesus worth to you? Like ask yourself that question, what is Jesus worth to me? 
say with me, what is Jesus worth to me? Well, as we come to the table, uh, what we're reminded of is uh, what we're worth to Jesus. Because as we come to this table, what is spread before us is the extravagant love of God. As we come to this table, we're reminded how much he loves us, that we have a God who would give us everything. We have a God who didn't just sort of say, hey, here you are, go out in the world, create it for yourself. We have a God who doesn't give us 30 pieces of silver and say, go make do in the world. We have a God who gave us life and gave us breath. And when we come to this table, we're reminded that we have a God who gave us his life and his breath. He gave us his body and his blood as an extravagant expression of his great love that he would give everything for us because he loves us. He would give everything for us to forgive us. He would give everything for us to reconcile us to the Father and then pours out the glories and the riches of heaven upon us by his Holy Spirit. As we come to this table, we are being invited to come and to rejoice and to celebrate God's extravagant love for us in the giving of himself. And therefore, I invite you to rise and to lift up your hearts.